and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 290, The Invasion of Burma, Prelude. The initial invasion of Burma by the Japanese would unfold like all the other attacks in Southeast Asia, a quick and stunning success, with the Allies falling back in the face of an enemy that had more men, was better organized, and brought to bear a professionalism and savagery that the Westerners did not think them capable of. The battle for Burma would be the longest land campaign fought by British Commonwealth troops in the war, and the largest land campaign fought by the Western Allies against the Japanese. However, the Allies' exploits here, the stunning defeats at first, followed by stunning victories later, have mostly been forgotten outshined by other theaters of war, while the men leading the Allied forces in Burma, like Lieutenant General William Slim, General Vinegar Joe Stilwell, and even a Chinese expeditionary force which tried to save the Westerners when they retreated in early 42, have lost their rightful place in history books to more flashy individuals, the irascible Patton, the stolid Zhukov, the willful Montgomery, the savior of Europe, Eisenhower, and even the everyman's leader, Omar Bradley. Yet by the time Burma was liberated, at least from the Japanese, both sides, the Allies and the Japanese with their allies, had lost just over 100,000 men each, dead, wounded, or missing. A major theater, indeed. Also less well-known, in time, about 60,000 Americans fought there as well, mostly of the 47th U.S. Army Air Force squadrons. But it would be the men of India, Sikhs, Rajputs, Baluchis, Punjabis, and Gurkhas, all told some 340,000, that would determine the outcome of the Battle of Burma. Perhaps a contributing factor as to why the Battle of Burma has been lost in the West. But, of course, there is the relatively well-known story of the 61,000 Allied POWs who were forced to work on the railway for the Japanese. These men were captured in Malaya and during the Netherlands East Indies campaigns. But what is less well-known are the 270,000 locals from Malaya, Thailand, and the Netherlands East Indies who were forced to work on it as well. Many of them lost their lives but outside Southeast Asia, they have been forgotten. The Burma Theater also exposes a common misconception. Before the Japanese invaded Malaya in December of 41, they had no experience in jungle warfare. They did as well as they did due to their high standard of training and toughness. The experience and techniques for fighting in the jungles and mountain terrain came later. As for the British and Commonwealth troops in Burma, when the Japanese invaded, they neither were ready for battling in the jungle. But in their defense, the commander-in-chief Far East and his staff firmly believed the very geography of Burma would be enough to keep the Japanese out. After all, Burma, a British colony, was only seen as a defense for the much more valued India. And in between Burma and India, there was only one barely developed road and no railways. 
its status was that of a buffer, yet the buffer did not hold. And soon enough, India itself, which provided the British Empire with 2.5 million troops during the war, was threatened. So the Commonwealth troops would also have to learn jungle warfare, and they would, in time. But until that experience was earned, there would be many Allied soldiers lost, and many months wasted. Further, until the Allied troops could go toe-to-toe in the jungle, to them, the Japanese fighting men did seem invincible. But if the terrain would not stop the Japanese, then surely the weather would. Only from mid-October to March is the weather in Burma desirable, warm and dry during the day, cool at night. But then April comes, and with it, the heat and humidity. The monsoons make their appearance from mid-May till mid-September, and Burma is then the very definition of malaria, dysentery, floods, and storms. Not ideal conditions for fighting, or at the very least, flying. In truth, the Japanese did not want Burma per se. It was only southern Burma that was deemed needed to protect the western flank of occupied Malaya. But the rest of Burma would be taken because they could, given the retreating Allied troops. So Burma would be the western end of the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. Yet, in a strict military sense, as Japan had been trying, on and off again, to subdue China since 1931, taking Burma also meant the closing off of the Burma Road, from Rangoon going to the northeast into China, the only land route that provided Chiang Kai-shek with his Allied war material. Thus, with the invasion and occupation of Burma, the Japanese Empire would put up a barrier against the Allies to their far west, hold a knife to India's, but really Britain's, throat, and strangle China, whose stubborn resistance was demanding that at least one million Japanese troops stay there in current operations. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Burma then, Myanmar today, is the largest of the mainland Southeast Asian states, 
And though borders change, back during the war, it was still massive, which went unappreciated by practically everyone who did not fight in that campaign. This is how Major General Julian Thompson, retired of the Royal Marines, who has written a few books on this conflict, describes Burma's size. If Burma was superimposed on a map of Europe, Fort Hearns in the extreme north would be in the middle of the North Sea. Mandalay, near Paris, Rangoon, where the Pyrenees meet the Mediterranean, and Maumin on Marseille. Victoria Point, at the southern end of the long isthmus of Tenasserim, would be three-quarters of the way across the Mediterranean. Hence, a massive country, with few undeveloped roads, four major rivers, and each of those have many tributaries that empty into the Bay of Bengal. Monsoons and disease as well. This was the latest theater the Japanese Empire wished to control. Evidence of the first Homo sapiens in Myanmar dates back 25,000 years, yet the first city-states to emerge came along around the 2nd century BC, mostly in central Myanmar. These people were of the Tibeto-Burman, who had been migrating from the north. Like Rome, the surrounding population centers were absorbed or conquered, with those people taking on the Burmese language and culture. Like all other civilizations, the Burmans' influence would wax and wane, from its pagan rulers who built 10,000 Buddhist temples to the several Mongol invasions, which called for patience as military victory was not possible. This ebb and flow of power from the central city-states was followed by other states within Burma becoming the most powerful, only to fall themselves to be replaced by another. But one of the largest empires within Burma, and one of its most recent, was the state of Tuanggu and its leader, Beinyan. But when he died in 1581 and the Portuguese came in, they were free to set up their own outposts. But the Tuanggu Empire would revive itself and push out the Portuguese in 1613. Still, this empire itself fell in 1752 to another kingdom, the Hathawadi, who, in the 1850s, fought off another rival empire who had been backed by the French and British. Still, the Hathawadi had won and the Europeans lost their influence for the moment. By now, the British were in India, and being the neighbors to such an ambitious European power, it wasn't long before there were three Anglo-Burmese wars. The last, in 1885, saw the British take all of Burma, in reaction to the French consolidating their holdings in Indochina. With such a proud and defiant past, it wouldn't be long before the Burmans, the indigenous Burmese, chose to live mostly in the center of the country, with the British mostly interested in the coastal areas. As it was their country, they hated British dominance, and that hatred was focused on the many Indians the British brought in to work on public projects. They also hated the Chinese who came in and dominated segments of their economy, and they certainly hated the tribespeople who lived on the country's edges. These people were persecuted by the majority Burmans 
for a very long time. On the 1st of April, 1937, Burma became a separate colony from India, with Ba Ma, a native barrister and political leader, becoming the first prime minister of Burma. Of course, he wasted no time in advocating for an independent Burma, and clearly did not want his country dragged into a war against the Japanese. Unfortunately, these were not his calls to make. He would soon be removed from office by the British, but when the Japanese took control and promised much more than the British were willing to offer, Ma became the head of a Burmese executive administration in August of 1942. During the Arcadia Conference, when Churchill and his war staff came to Washington to work out the military strategy and the political statements of their united goals, it was decided, as a compromise, that a British officer would command the Far East. Thus, General Archibald Wavell would head up the American, British, Dutch, Australian, or ABDA Supreme Command. This was only fair as the Americans demanded that one of their own be the supreme commander in Europe. Now, Churchill knew that with Japan running riot all over Southeast Asia, many European outposts there would be lost, and thus some British politicians and officers who had been around long enough to know how the game is played wondered to each other, did the Americans give way on a British commander in Asia as they knew it was going to be a bloody awful mess for the foreseeable future. Yet Churchill had no choice, as the Australian Prime Minister, John Curtin, was fretting over and over again about getting his Australian troops back home or to get someone to help defend Australia. It had gotten to the point that Curtin was threatening to go to Russia for aid. Now Churchill could at least say to him, a Brit was in charge of the Far East. But again, given Burma's size, would it be too much for Wavell, the ABDA commander and commander Far East, to handle? Normally reserved and known for long moments of silent thought, he told General Dill when he was told that Burma was now his, I have heard of men having to hold the baby, but this, this is quadruplets. Still, Wavell would do as he was ordered. But that did not stop him and Chiang Kai-shek, the leader of nationalist China, who had been made the supreme commander of China, Siam, or Thailand, and Indochina, from having a cross word or four during the Chongqing Conference of December 23, 1941. London made it clear to Wavell that the Chinese were not allowed in Burma for fear they would never leave, which is fair enough. Yet the U.S. did not want to help Britain in Burma either if it was only going to remain as a colony after the war. And making this even more complicated, Chiang Kai-shek was hoarding his lend-lease material and his best troops to fight against the Japanese if they had to, but mostly for the nationalists to one day subdue the various warlords around China, but mostly for the showdown that was coming with communist China, and they all knew it. As for the Japanese, Cheng's general attitude was, let them strut and fret upon the stage for a while. The Americans and other Western powers would bring them low in time. He just had to hang on. 
it will come as no surprise that, one, the Far East Command was on the far end of receiving supplies, and Burma was on the far end of even this line, and two, the British, Americans, and Chinese, not forgetting the Burmans themselves, all had differing motivations, policies, and goals. So when the powerful and united Japanese came at Burma, the initial response was defeat and retreat for the Allies, followed by playing the blaming game. But getting back to that Chongqing conference in late December, besides the rare harsh word from Wavell towards the Generalissimo, at one point Wavell's voice dropped at a moment it should have been raised. Whether Chiang Kai-shek knew it or not, Wavell was responding in an extremely British way when he was asked, would London like China to send 80 or 90,000 troops to Burma to help defend the Burma Road? After all, it was keeping, in theory, the nationalist Chinese in the war. Wavell's response was simply, we British would consider it a disgrace to have Chinese troops liberate Burma for us. All we ask is that you let us have your lend-lease stockpile. Yet Chang was not going to do that, which is probably why he offered up the men in the first place. The Burma Road, 717 miles or 1,154 kilometers long, was important to China, but also to the United States. Built in sections, but completed in 1938 during the Second Sino-Japanese War by 200,000 Burmese and Chinese laborers, it was needed by the United States to get lend-lease material to China to keep them in the fight. Washington knew that it would take time for America to get into a fighting trim, and for now, Japan had to be kept busy with someone, and as they were already in the war, it was China. And though there had been rough moments of political tension between the United States and China in the early 20th century, the younger country saw the ancient civilization still learning its way through representative government as its ward. If anyone had ever said this out loud to Chiang Kai-shek, he would have only smiled. But in July of 1940, with the British fighting for dear life against the Germans, Tokyo pressured London to close down the Burma Road to help weaken China. They did this, but only for about three months. Yet when the Japanese came to Burma in February of 42, the road was closed again which left the British and Americans to supply the Chinese nationalists by air, by going over the hump of the eastern end of the Himalayas, which meant fewer supplies each month, as America's bombers were needed elsewhere. In 1941, before Pearl, the Americans were sending their China-bound supplies by ship to Rangoon, Burma's capital. Then it was placed on rail cars and taken to Lashio in northern Burma then put aboard trucks and driven over the 700-some mile to Chiang's waiting men. Of course, Chiang himself knew how important it was to China to have Burma denied to the Japanese as well. So even though Wavell had given him a polite no to a Chinese expeditionary force going into Burma, the Generalissimo still ordered the new 6th Army to position itself on the China-Burma border in the Yunnan province. 
And just before the Japanese entered Burma, the Chinese 6th and 5th Armies had taken over responsibility of the Mekong River section in the Yunnan province from the British Burma Division, which freed them up. But it would not be enough. When Hong Kong fell on Christmas Day in 41, to be followed by Thailand, an agreement had been reached, the Philippines and Indochina, the Burma Road became the only real option for supplies, which is why the Japanese decided to push into Burma to cut off China's last hope. With America now in the war, Chiang, having nothing to lose, increased his demands for U.S. weapons, but also American troops. This wasn't going to happen, and FDR knew this. So, to compensate, the White House offered up a $5 million loan and would send General Joseph Stilwell to act as Chiang's chief of staff. Stilwell's formal title would be Commander-in-Chief of U.S. Forces in China. Chiang Kai-shek wasn't the only one who could offer up words and empty gestures instead of substance. Joseph Vinegar Joe Stilwell was a man of almost boundless energy. Studying Mandarin since 1920, he already spoke French and Spanish. He had previously been sent to China to get the lay of the land in regards to the Second Sino-Japanese War. For this rather direct man, who hated pomp of all kinds, there was much to admire about the Chinese and much that would cause his hackles to rise. Such was the complex ancient people of China. Brought back by General George Marshall, the newly appointed Chief of Staff of the United States Army in September of 39, Stilwell was promoted to Brigadier General and told to help whip the American forces into shape as war had broken out in Europe. And as Poland disappeared off of the world's map, Washington was motivated to pass a slew of legislation, from increasing the number of men in uniform, though still a relatively low number, to repealing the Arms Embargo Act. Still, the isolationists were unbowed. That is, until France fell in the summer of 1940. Now, anything seemed possible. The Atlantic Ocean was no longer big enough. In July of 1940, Stilwell was moved from training men in Texas to commanding the 7th Division in California. If the men under him thought he was tough and energized in Texas, Stilwell, in obtaining every officer's dream command, was happily working 16 hours a day every day, turning his men into soldiers, and those soldiers into a well-oiled fighting machine. When Pearl Harbor was attacked, General Stilwell was in Carmel, California, and thus caught up in the panic along the American West Coast. Personally, he believed that California was too far away for the Japanese to strike. Still, he toured the coastline, trying to calm people down, but at the same time doing his part to bring in more army troops, to find them places to billet, and what would be a regular refrain of his in Burma, get more ammunition to the troops. But all that changed on December 22nd, when he was ordered to Washington. General Marshall wanted him to command the first American offensive of the war, to be known as Plan Black, by landing with his men in French West Africa, or maybe Casablanca, or maybe Iceland, 
or maybe the Canary Islands. Who in the hell knew? Because Stilwell didn't, because no one else did. Washington could not decide the best way to dip their toe into this war. But as December turned into January of the new year, news came of the old world's Asian outposts falling to the Japanese with lightning rapidity. During the Arcadia Conference in Washington, the pro-empire element of the British delegation tried to put on a brave face. But there was one group outside of Washington who felt the opposite. They were, in fact, dancing in the streets. It was the Chinese. Like Churchill, with the Americans in the war, Chiang Kai-shek assumed Japan's days were numbered. It was just a matter of when. In fact, on the same day Pearl Harbor was bombed, Chiang called for a meeting with British and American representatives to join together in a military pact of mutual assistance. But, as we have seen, the talks between the ABDA commander, Wavell, and the Chinese leader did not produce results that would instill confidence of victory. In effect, the outcome of this talk hit the two main players, Churchill and Roosevelt, differently. The British were not concerned with China for right now. In fact, they did not trust Chiang, whereas FDR wanted China to stay in the fight to not let all of Asia fall to the Japanese. As the president put it to his son Elliot, if Chinese resistance completely collapsed, how many divisions of Japanese troops do you think would be freed? To do what? Take Australia? Take India? It's as ripe as a plum for the picking. Or move straight on to the Middle East, a giant pincer movement by the Japanese and Nazis meeting somewhere in the Near East, cutting the Russians off completely. The American general staff felt the same way as their president. So, on New Year's Day, 1942, George Marshall had Stilwell pay him a visit. Marshall explained the complex situation that was the subject of Anglo-Chinese relations and said that an American officer was needed in Chongqing to play referee, which is the last thing Stilwell wanted a position of politics with no American troops to lead? As he told Marshall, Me? No, thank you. Yet the army is not known for making requests. Stilwell then met with Secretary of War Henry Stimson. The secretary said that Washington needed someone who could preserve China as an airbase, build up the American Volunteer Group, a.k.a. the Flying Tigers, and equip and train the Chinese forces to more effectively fight against the Japanese. That's what Lend-Lease was all about, after all, arming others to fight in their own defense. That was the carrot. The stick was that Chiang Kai-shek wanted someone he could push around, someone who didn't know anything about China, but had enough clout back home to get the Generalissimo all the supplies he wanted. Not that Stilwell's reaction to any of this mattered. As General Marshall told Stilwell, Joe, you have 24 hours to think up a better candidate. Otherwise, it's you. But there was no one else who was more qualified. When the invasion into Burma came, it would be in the form of the Japanese 15th Army, led by Lieutenant General Sijiro Ida. At first, this force was meant to occupy northern Thailand, which, it may be remembered, had signed a treaty of friendship with Japan on December 21st of 1941. 
but now the 15th Army was ordered to attack and occupy southern Burma, specifically the province of Tenasserim along the Malayan Peninsula. But that would not be the only problem of Lieutenant General Thomas Hutton, the British commander of the Burma Army, comprised of the 17th Indian Infantry Division and the 1st Burma Division. For one, when the Japanese came, the British believed the attack would come from the sea, and so like at Singapore, their large coastal batteries were ready, pointing outward. Also, before the war, Burmese activists seeking Burmese independence met with Japanese officials and received military training. When the Japanese crossed the border into Burma on December 14th and attacked Victoria Point, near the most southern end of Burmese territory on the Malayan Peninsula, they were soon joined by the newly created Burma Independence Army. At the moment, it only had 227 Burmese and 74 Japanese personnel. But as Burma seemed about to go the way of much of Southeast Asia, many adherents soon swelled its ranks. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, as far as the rain in the background, I'm very sorry, but considering we're about to be talking about Burma and monsoons, it's uh, apropos. Besides, it's been raining for the last five days or something like that, and it's supposed to rain for another five days, and I just wasn't going to wait anymore to put this out. Um, for those of you who are stuck at home like me during the lockdown, you might want to consider reading or listening to Stillwell's biography by Barbara Tuckman. And if you have a, a, a chance, get the audiobook because the reader does an incredible job. But anyway, in case you don't want to, or that's not your cup of tea and that's fine, I wanted to give you a couple of Stillwell sayings because I found them very entertaining. Uh, first of all, he had a diary. He kept a very good diary. A lot of his impressions um, that uh, Tuckman was able to use to create her um, biography of him. But the title of it that he wrote on the inside cover was None of Your Damned Business, which I enjoyed very much. Um, in regards to someone giving a long, unnecessary speech or someone who's showing off, he had a saying that would go, The higher a monkey climbs up a pole, the more you can see of his behind. And he had a favorite Latin expression that he personally translated to, don't let the bastards grind you down. I love that very much. Um, he also had another saying, which is, I think it's commonplace now, don't assume anything, look. Uh, but my favorite one, uh, for those of you who work and you have meetings all the time and you walk away from the meeting going, yeah, that could have been an email. He had a saying that went, a meeting is an event at which the minutes are kept and the hours are lost. And the one that's most appropriate to the story, after he and his force are chased out of Burma, he says, and he was very upfront about this, he says to the American press, I claim we got a hell of a beating. We got run out of Burma, and it is as humiliating as hell. I think we ought to find out what caused it, go back, and retake it. <laughs> 